0: City Road Podcast is recorded on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people. Hello, Dallas Rogers here again from City Road Podcast, and welcome back to Innovating Cities, a special short series from the University of Wollongong, the University of Sydney, and the University of Auckland. In episode two, Innovating Urban Governance Design Thinking, we hear about how design approaches and methods are being applied to fix some of the problems facing city governments around the world. Enjoy.
1: City governments are facing an increasingly complex set of issues to solve. But how can design be part of the solution to solving these problems, not just making cities more beautiful, but actually making cities better places
0: to live. I guess it's always been a little bit about design, but we often sort of bill ourselves as an R&D shop where the D stands for design. Co-design, it is thinking about process design, program design, as well as trying to make things beautiful. We're trying to sort of embed that thinking into city government.
1: So we are Robin Dowling.
2: And Sophia Malson from the University of Sydney, with Pauline McGurk from the University of Wollongong and Tom Baker from the University of Auckland. And we're a research team funded by the Australian Research Council to investigate the range of innovation initiatives that city governments are rolling out as they try to address the challenges facing cities. And this is Innovating Cities, a special podcast series that
1: examines how city governments are using innovative and different approaches to how they govern. So, that they can address urban problems more efficiently, effectively, and improve the quality of lives of their residents. Our podcasts are produced on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respect to the traditional custodians of these lands and to country itself.
2: Design thinking, co design, prototyping, human centred design. Robin, these are terms that we've become familiar with from our work in design and architecture, but not something that people might think of when we think of government and policy making. That's right, Sophia.
1: Thinking about design in the policy realm is relatively new, but it's become quite common. And there's lots of definitions that are really that we found in our research. Are, you can find across various city governments and are very helpful. And a couple of organisations have really interesting approaches. So, for example, the Design School at Stanford are quite famous in their use of design thinking for different means there's a process that you talk about well you begin by empathizing you think about well what is a what is the problem or the issue from the perspective of somebody who is involved in that issue and then you define the problem based on that then you ideate or you change or you refine and you reflect on what is going on uh, then you prototype so you make a make an object or a test or a prototype you think hmm Does this work? And you test it to see whether it actually works. Or even our own designers here at the Sydney School of Architecture, Design and Planning have a really good book called Design, Think, Make, Break, Repeat, which is really a nice summary of the design process. So thinking, well, you start with the people. What are their needs? So if you're designing a process or a policy, you know what are the people affected by the policy might might be their needs? Then you make. So you generate ideas, you generate objects, you might generate a policy or a... A concept, and then you break it. And breaking it means that you experiment, you test it, and like, does this work in the real world? And so that's that sort of iterative process of design is what we're starting to see inflected in government approaches to policy making and to service provision across many cities in the world. So, what one thing that we've also discovered, and that we're going to explore in in our podcast, Sophia, is that we can think about the design thinking in in three different ways. We can think about design as an attitude, design as an approach, but also design as a method.
2: That's really interesting, Robin, and I really like the way that you think about this in this sort of three-pronged framework. So an attitude, can you talk me through that? Certainly. So design as an
1: attitude, that is about being open to exploring ideas, finding creative and novel solutions to problems. So Eliza Erickson, who's the former Director of Innovation and Strategy for the city of Philadelphia, has a particular way of thinking about design as an attitude and new ways of thinking.
3: We always tell people, you know, there's no right way to be innovative. Like, I can teach you how to do traditionally a creative matrix, but you can then morph that into whatever makes sense to you. Like, I'm not here to police your creativity, I'm here to tell you that there are, here's a new way of thinking. If you like it, great. If you don't like it, that's fine. I'll give you another tool. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: So that's design as an attitude. But secondly, design can be thought of as a process approach. And that is working often with others to translate knowledge and ideas into formal artefacts. For example, we spoke to anna Savar Stottier, Service and Digital Transformation Manager in Reykjavik, whose welfare department wanted to transform their entire process around financial aid. And at that point in time, the process was, you know, people who needed uh, the support
4: had to go from office to office, between, you know, the state and the municipality, gathering a lot of documents, You know, traveling in real time and handing in paper documents and, uh, you know, the classical uh, thing and the welfare department was courageous enough to say, "Okay, uh, we are sure that uh, we can do this process better, better designed for uh, the users. We are sure that we are able to use uh, digital uh, solutions. Uh, to better enable. I mean if you can follow your pizza in real time you must be able to uh, do this process uh, much better. So they put their trust in us and uh, we did a a very intense very by the book uh, sprint around three or four months where we just got an outside team of programmers and designers we got specialists from the welfare department put them all in together and and made them work so and they followed the process you know very rigorously through through every step of the process the discovery and synthesis and testing and all the things and through that project which was very successful, came out the digital product and a new process, a human-centered process, and it was very successful.
2: And the third way we can think of design was as a method, right? Yes,
1: so a a doing or a method involves a wide array of tools and techniques. So design as a a method means you apply those tools to particular situations. Some of those tools might include a focus on co-creation, working with others, a participatory approach that engages all relevant actors in defining solutions. So that might be in iLabs or MyLabs and community engagement. So Eliza Erickson, again, provides a really useful description of what some of these tools and methods might be.
3: So design thinking plays a really pivotal role, especially in the academy and in innovation consulting. Um, The curriculum of the Innovation Academy is very heavily focused on design thinking and human-centered design techniques. But I would say kind of with the understanding that at their core, those ways of thinking are really just about, in, in my mind, you know, are really just about new ways of including and engaging people in program design, in policy design, You know, folks who I think traditionally are not, are either not involved in the design process or haven't been engaged in a way that feels really authentic.
2: Now, a lot of this sounds like approaches we hear about in other areas. So sometimes the term design thinking is used in a way that is more familiar to us in design and architecture. But from our interviews with innovation units from around the world, different terms were used. Yes, yeah, so and many
1: of those terms didn't come from design and architecture. So in, in Philadelphia they they were drawing from behavioural science or service designers rather than architectural. Or in Pittsburgh and, and Tesla, again, two US cities, uh, they used processes that came from the manufacturing industry to inform what they were doing. And some of them used a, a more philosophical or anthropology approach about a theory of change. So how do you change the world? They drew from processes of change and applied that to city government.
2: So what we might consider as design thinking approaches are often drawn in from different disciplines, but are essentially interested in achieving the same outcomes. Interestingly, when we asked people about what they meant by design thinking, many were quick to say that they weren't design experts, but that they used it as a catch-all for an approach to problem solving that brings different people together as a way of co-creating, is an experimental method, and is also iterative and creative. So why might a city look to using design thinking? Why would they want to do it? And what does it offer that our business-as-usual approach doesn't? And also important is, well, how would they do it? If we were a city government, well, how would
1: we implement design thinking in our processes and our activities and our policy development? And what our research has found is that there's two perhaps obvious ways that design thinking becomes apparent in city government. Design thinking can be part of a city's formal strategy. So they could put it in planning documents, in uh, institutional norms and expectations. But what we found is that that's actually not very common. It does happen, but it's not as common as the second approach, which is design thinking becomes part of a method associated with innovation units. So those iLabs that we talked about in episode one of the podcast series, those places where innovation is allowed to flourish, these sort of islands of innovation within a local or a city government, that is where design thinking is most likely to happen. Returning to Anna E. Saiva Stottier again, she talks about this ways that design can be sort of nurtured within this tiny part of the organisation. Alongside a tiny, tiny, tiny digital team, and we were
4: kind of uh, uh, nobody knew who we were. Uh, we didn't, nobody understood what we were doing why we were doing it, why we were you know, knocking on people's door and, and saying, hey, we, we want to play, you know, can we, can we help you better your services by using this great uh, methodology? And, you know, have you heard about, you know, digital products? You know, They are very clever. Um, so that was kind of the, the beginning. And uh, we, we ran into a uh, few obstacles,
2: to say the least. Okay, so that gives us a little bit of an indication as to why people might want to use design thinking in government. Who is actually doing it, though? Is there someone who does the design thinking or is it a group of people? So the first point there is that design thinking in government needs a
1: champion. All the organisations we looked at needed somebody some of the people we've talked about already, who were going to champion and advocate for design thinking in the organisation. Without that, it wasn't going to happen at all. So, yes, you need a champion. But what was also quite distinctive about using design thinking is that different agencies that not traditionally associated with urban policy would be involved. So if we think about, for example, a great example we spoke to was City Studio in Vancouver. And City Studio were using design thinking to solve a whole series of really important problems in the city of Vancouver. But they did so through a collaboration. So City Studio were essentially, a they would provide advice to the city. The city of Vancouver were involved and they would provide the problems that needed to be solved. And then City Studio would source ideas and creativity and different ways of approaching that problem by alliances with the local universities. So university students would come in. The city would give the students a brief to say, you know, this is a problem, and they would then go and do a design thinking approach to um, resolve that issue and then present back to the city a solution. You wouldn't normally expect university students, you know, being part of urban
2: (laughs) policy, but they're really important. Actually, that reminds me of our interview with Shane Waring from Dublin Beta, where he mentioned they sometimes worked with students from the National College of Art and Design to problem solve some of the city problems. And it strikes me as slightly different to perhaps some of the other stakeholders that we might think of as well as being engaged in this process, where, say, for example, uh, some of the cases like Monum at the City of Boston and our interviews in Philadelphia were also working with other departments internally. In local government. So, not just external stakeholders, but different participants from within government. So, I guess there's a range of people that you can co design with. So, in Boston, Chris Carter, former co chair of the Boston's Mayor Office of New Urban Mechanics, who we heard from at the top of the episode, talks about how their work with designers is only just beginning.
0: You know, as we've grown our portfolio too and started including more health and human services type program. So we do do a fair amount with the Office of Returning Citizens, which is about people that are formerly incarcerated, uh, a bunch of work with people that are facing uh, addiction issues and recovery. Um, It's been really wonderful to have some designers on staff that are incredibly empathetic. And not that we aren't. (laughs) Next level empathy um, in how they're approaching even the questions that we would ask someone or the type of intervention that we might even try um, and we're about to bring on a third designer who's going to really work on, like, food insecurity issues. So wow. I-, I think there's some amazing potential in what design can be in this space and what it can be in cities. And-, and often we're maybe just scratching the surface.
1: Those examples are really fascinating, Sophia, from Boston, from Dublin, and the one I used from Vancouver, that really show there's different collaborations and different institutions, different organisations, different people are involved if you are going to be design thinking as a way of doing urban governance. So that's all fantastic. But then the question is, well, what does it actually look like in practice? You know, how does it get embedded into a a government or how does it change the the city environment or the city policy or the city
2: economy? So one example where we can see design thinking in practice comes from Terence Smith is the former director of the Innovation Unit from the City of Mobile in Alabama, who spoke to us about using a design thinking approach to improve their 311 service. Now, the 311 service is like a service hotline. You can ring up and request or report an incident.
5: And then I think one of the last projects that we took on was 311. We realized that we received lots of complaints about 311 service itself when 311 itself was supposed to take in complaints <laughs> and, and make sure that we're delivering solutions. But we realized that what happened is we allowed citizens to view 311 as a complaint line versus 311 being an information hub and a, and a citizen-centric center. And so one of the things that we did was in, in doing that, we went back through the processes of, uh, the processes that were put into place from the EAM for the for the enterprise asset management system. And realize that because we were just moving the old process maps into new systems, we were just bringing the old problems into new systems and creating a bunch of frustration for ourselves. So we employ service designers to come in, uh, speak with uh, frontline staff members, speak with uh, speak with the people who are at the center of each um, of each uh, citizen request, a service request order, uh, to only to realize that hey these things are outdated. And so let's remove the waste from each section, which takes a long time, but then let's also now start to evaluate how long it take to have this request reviewed. And so now we're, we're at a process where we did an overhaul of the entire system. Uh, citizens now are very aware that, that 311 is a knowledge hub. So now they're using it for more than just complaining, but they're using it as the front door to government and to engagement.
1: That sounds great. The three-on-one was, was supposed to be the front door to government and, and engagement and it wasn't and they employed service designers and a design thinking approach and actually allowed it to fulfil what it was supposed to do in the first place. Another example we can take from City Studio which we spoke about before and their use of students with the City of, of Vancouver and Dwayne Elverham from the City Studio Vancouver spoke to us about using a design thinking with the city to improve immigration settlement services. Cities like Vancouver and other big immigration hubs across the world, resettling immigrants into their city is such an important uh, service provision that, that they are required and, and want to provide to help citizens settle in. So it's important that their immigration settlement services work.
6: So it's a multi-year project where the city said they wanted to improve settlement services in the Vancouver Immigration Partnership. They were getting complaints from new immigrants were coming in and frustration and this, this whole bureaucratic process. And the city said, City Studio, can you help us? We took the list of the problems that they had identified and what surveys have said, and we took it to marketing and nursing. And so in business and nursing, community health, they worked together to, to create new UX Improvements, user design improvements to the settlement services processes. That was year one. So year one, that goes back. They work. They do that for a year. They use the changes. Then they come back to us the next year and say, okay, we've identified new settlement services issues. Goes back to nursing and marketing. Comes back. In over four years, it resulted in a federal grant. It resulted in a, what... They have talked about as a kind of vast improvement to the settlement services experience and now the city has a set of practices that have become the new standard and it was with a community partner mosaic is the community partner the city of vancouver social planning and then marketing and uh, nursing from the university interesting yeah a lot of feedback there's a lot of in this design thinking world and innovation there's this reiterative loop of Really knowing that feedback is gold, Hmm. even though sometimes it just annoys you, but it's, it's just really the gold.
2: So we can see that there's a lot of moving parts in design thinking approaches, both across different people being involved, the ways you could do it, how you could approach it and the problems that it addresses. So what would actually a successful design thinking project look like? And it's interesting. We asked a couple of our interviewees around how they measured success. And while some of them mentioned that there were some metrics that they could use, such as, for example, how many times a new, say, app was downloaded or how many people came through, they were more interested in the qualitative aspects. So how people thought about a space or, in the words of Shane Waring from Dublin Beta, whether or not Dublin became a better place because of it. So it's not always easily measurable. And actually failure might not be considered failure in that sense because it reveals issues that weren't there previously and it shows government where they need to draw their attention to fix things, which actually leads me to my next question, which is around the lesson learned from design thinking. So, Robin, what has our research shown us about design thinking and what are some takeaway lessons?
1: The first takeaway is the one you just mentioned, Sophia, and that is that what you learn from it is, in fact, an important measure of success. If you uh, implement a design thinking approach and don't learn anything from it, just, you know, it doesn't work, so you say, oh, well, I move on. We've learned that learning, understanding that things might fail, but that's not a problem, as you say, that we need to to learn from that and do something better, to iterate, as designers would say. The other main thing we've learned is about the types of people and or sorts of expertise city governments might best have to implement a design thinking approach. So the city of Toronto, for example, talks about the need for a certain mindset and other skills alongside design thinking, not necessarily formally trained designers, but people able to understand a creative process, the the willingness to, to make something and break it and learn from the breakages and and move on is one of the things. And as we also will explore in episode three, what we also discovered was that Content expertise wasn't necessarily the best type of expertise. So if you are uh, redesigning immigration settlement services, certainly you need to understand the intricacies of immigration resettlement. But that's not the only thing you need. You also need someone who has expertise in process, whether that be in participatory engagement or whether that be uh, in bringing people along into a solution or creatively doing policymaking in a different way that might not be how settlement services have conventionally been organised. So it's not just the content. You need That content knowledge is important, but it's not the only knowledge that you need to create a better city. And that, that ability or that types of expertise and orientations to being a public servant or a city government person, is actually changing. And that's what we will, Tom and Pauline, will explore further in episode three.
2: Okay, so I can see that actually reflected in our interview with Anne-Marie Crochet from the City of Toronto, who talks about the need for a certain mindset and these other skills alongside design thinking when she is looking to hire people even when I'm hiring now, I hire for the core competencies. I don't hire for somebody who has service design experience. I can teach that. Right. We can walk you through a process, but I need somebody who has really soft skills, somebody that I know I can take into the community, somebody that can be and understands the importance of empathy, somebody that understands the purpose of, you know, gathering data and tracking it throughout the process. Um, uh, that is something that that mindset is much harder to learn than human-centered design, except to me.
1: And that's why it would be fantastic for everyone to join us for the next episode where we discuss what it takes to build creative capacity within bureaucracies. I'm Robin Dowling from the University of Sydney, and I'm Sophia Melson, also from the University of Sydney. Thanks for joining us in this second episode of a special podcast series on urban governance innovation, Innovating Cities, a joint project by the University of Wollongong, the University of Sydney and the University of Auckland. We've put links to our ARC funded research project in the show notes, which you'll find in your podcasting app.
2: Thanks to City Road Podcast for hosting us. And a special thanks to Laura Goh, our research associate on the project, and our producer, Jennifer Macy, and audio editor, Emily Perkins. We hope you can join us next time.